Hello again, and welcome to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where each week we take a film out of the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die. Discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Woodington. And uh, if you've been following us for the past couple of weeks, we've been doing a decade-by-decade celebration of film. We have now made it to 1980. We have now made it to our first David Lynch film. And we have made it to our first guest in quite some time. Uh, I'm actually really excited to have him on the show. Uh, MJ Sieber. MJ, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Thanks so much for having me. I've uh, I've really enjoyed listening to. I haven't listened to the entire catalog of your podcast, but I've listened to a number of episodes, and uh, I'm super jazzed to be on here. Thanks for asking me. Well, and I so so to those of you listening, um, MJ and I have been in uh, a single show together. We're we're both actors, and we were in a Midsummer Night's Dream. And in many a green room discussion, did I find out that he is just as nerdy about films as we are, and. I, I I don't know how, but I locked it away in my brain that you were a David Lynch fan. And to quote your email back to me, MJ, you said that um, Lynch is your favorite artist of all time. And I don't. And I'm certainly not trying to put you on the spot, but I'm just I I I'm very interested in knowing what just what is it about his work that that pulls you in? Because I'm sure. Beyond Elephant Man, we'll be discussing Lynch at some some detail throughout the episode. Yeah, his fingerprints are like all over this movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, um, uh, I I can honestly say like the first thing I ever saw of Lynch was um, I was watching Bravo late at night and they were rerunning episodes of Twin Peaks and they had all these new um, <clears throat> intros that Lynch had written with the log lady. And so the log lady would sit there with her log by a fireplace and she would speak in some very, very like obscure uh, dialogue to set this episode up. And then I started watching uh, Twin Peaks like late at night on Bravo every night. And I was blown away by the surrealism and the oddity of the whole thing. And I had never, ever seen anything like it. And from that point on, um, you know, the thing is, I'd probably seen Elephant Man prior to that. Um, but I certainly did revisit it after that, as I did with everything Lynch. And uh, yeah, he's my favorite artist. He's a visual artist. He's a recording artist. Like everything that he does, um, it just strikes a chord somewhere in my soul that that feels very kindred. Uh, so much so that when they were filming the new Twin Peaks, I uh, I left my agent because she didn't get me an audition for it because I was living in Seattle at the time. Um, and I had a couple of friends that were on set that were in some episodes and working on it. So I got a hotel room right across the street from the Double R Diner, Tweeds. And I stayed there for like two days and I just snuck on set and watched him work for like two days. There's like nobody else in the world that I would ever fanboy out that hard for. But like, you know, 72 year old Lynch, I was like, when, when are you going to get another chance to do this? So it was that, incredible. Watching him work was incredible. Yeah, that is fantastic. Um, I, I, I know I can I think I think Ian has, but I know that myself, this has been a crazy week because I, I have basically spent the week only watching Lynch stuff. Which is is interesting because I feel like my brain's a little fucked up because of it, but also because his his catalog is not like this movie really at all. Um, and, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about that when we get into it. Um, so oh, cool, great, great. I, then I I knew it. 
I picked the right person to be on the show. <laughs> I'm very excited to talk about the movie. Um, but before we get there, we always uh, recommend movies for our listeners to watch throughout the week, stuff that we've seen recently. And I'm, I'm so excited for you to now on Mike MJ, um, give your recommend. So what are you, what are you telling our, our listeners to watch? Yeah, I've been, uh, I love thrillers. I love horror. I love, you know, all of that. And so, uh, uh, my wife and I were really kind of trying to look for old thrillers that she hadn't seen before. And I love introducing her to Kurt Russell. Like it's one yes. of my favorite things ever. Um, it's like the Kurt Russell, Jeff Bridges show the last couple of months over here. And so, uh, we watched Breakdown. I think Breakdown was made in 98, uh, 97, 98, something like that. I saw it the first year I was in college. Kurt Russell, uh, Kathleen Quinlan, J.T. Walsh. Fucking J.T. Uh, Walsh. Oh, so good. And it's just uh, like good old fashioned, uh, you know, they kidnap this guy's wife and they uh, blackmail him to get some money. And uh, it's great. It is such a good, taut, tight thriller. Um, everything is earned. All the actors are great. J.T. Walsh is just extraordinary. He's so underplayed and he can be so villainous and so evil on one hand and then just switch it over and be the nice guy that you never look twice at. It's a, it's a fun movie. Yeah. It really, Ian, have you seen that? Uh, I have not, but it's, uh, it's been on my radar for quite a while. I am a, a diehard Kurt Russell fan. It's one of the gaps in his filmography that I need to fill. I, I remember in our in our small town we had a uh, a video store called Video Farm and my my mom was kind enough to um, even though I was only like eleven or twelve to on record say that Adam could come and rent R rated movies and I remember vividly remember riding my bike down to Video Farm and and renting this movie and watching it and like even eleven year old Adam liked it and I and I gotta say it was probably five or six years ago I made Melissa watch it because again. I, that's so funny. You said thrillers here are huge. If I can pick a thriller or a horror film, I'm a winner in the house. And breakdown, it's classic '90s thriller. And you, you, Ian has been going on a, like a mid '90s run, like Ransom and and Air Force One. You've got to, dude. You've got to watch Breakdown. It is. It will. It's gonna fill that that void. Oh, awesome! I'm. I'll track that down. I can't wait. Yeah, it's a great, great cast. I love JT Walsh. Oh, he's so good. And it was writer. I mean, he did only did a few more movies after that before he passed away. Um, but one of the things I love most about this isn't too much of a spoiler of the movie. I really love thrillers where the stakes kind of seem a little low as far as like the money involved. And I remember like the amount of money they're blackmailing him for is like, it's not small. It's like $80,000 or something, but it's not millions of dollars. It's not like this insurmountable sum that's going to change anybody's life. And so I love watching something where you, you know, they, they establish how much, how much this thing is. And then it just becomes life and death circumstances because everybody's so desperate. It's a really good movie. Well, that's a, it's a smart thing to do when you do set the stakes that low. I just revisited, um, payback, the, the Mel Gibson, Brian Helgeland film. I finally did, Brian Helgeland's director's cut, which I don't recommend. He like sapped all the life out of that film. And, uh, but yeah, I think the amount that Mel Gibson is looking for in that is his 70 grand, which to working class people, that's, that's a, a lot of money. So I, I always appreciate when films keep it kind of realistic and low key like that. Yeah, we're so used to like the heist films of like Ocean's Eleven where they're, you know, they're going to be leaving with $80 million or something. Or like I remember in Usual Suspects, they're like, you know, Pete Postlethwaite saying, you know, you'll have $91 million to split between you. And you're like, fuck. Sorry, can I say fuck? <laughs> yes, you can. 
Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. It'll probably we, happen a few more times. We will be saying uh, many a word like that throughout the episode. Great. Well, if we're gonna if we're gonna come around to talking about Dune, there will be many a what the fuck. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Even from Lynch himself. <laughs> uh, so, Ian, what do you uh, what recommend do you have this week? Well, I'm a, I was a little bit torn, as you said. I've been filling my brain with nothing but David Lynch this week, uh, and I have a sort of two-way tie between what I think are now my my two favorite David Lynch films. Um, I will just quickly sidebar, and I did sneak in a comedy during all of this. I did pop on Bill and Ted Face the Music last night, which was... I'm not going to sidebar too hard to talk about that. I will say, though, it's not the movie we deserve, but it's the fucking movie we need right now. Uh, <laughs> We're it watching was, it tonight. It, it was it was everything I hoped it would be. Uh, so my, my kind of two-way tie in my two favorite, my two new David uh, Lynch films are uh, Wild at Heart and Lost Highway. Uh, but I'm, I'm gonna, I'm kind of leaning wild at heart, so I'll talk a little bit about that one. Uh, 1990, Nick Cage, Laura Dern, Diane Ladd, who is Laura Dern's actual mother, playing her mother in the film. Uh, Harry Dean Stanton, who you would expect to see in David Lynch movies. Isabella Rossellini, Crispin Glover in a weird little what the fuck is going on here role as... Christmas Dale, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, of course, Jack Nance, who is a very famous collaborator of David Lynch's. This movie, the second it started, I just clapped my hands. I was like, yeah, that's it. Let's do it. I'm in. I, everything about this movie is just like Lynch turned up to 11. And having Nick Cage in it definitely helps. He goes full Cage, as we like to say, before he's even got a line of dialogue out. So I was like, yes. <laughs> exactly what i want and it's uh kind of very tarantino-esque you know sort of like his his screenplay for for true romance it's two lovers on the run they've got weirdos and hitmen and harry dean stanton a very sweet unassuming guy on their trail trying to to stop this relationship because the mother has a, a serious grudge against nick cage but just the the little details about this film are great like his jacket which was nick cage's actual snakeskin jacket and his repeated line about how this jacket represents individual freedom and and the right to express yourself and all that kind of stuff i didn't even mention willem dafoe who is genuinely Holy fucking terrifying shit. in this film he is just unsettling even to look at with the prosthetic fake sort of fucked up jagged all at all angles almost baby looking teeth and the I hesitate to call it a rape scene, but it does kind of border on rape where he's in the, the hotel room with Laura Dern. That genuinely got under my skin. Really, as I said, really, really unsettling. And then, like, completely throws you off guard when he gets her to say, fuck me. And then he pulls back and goes, I'd love to, but I gotta go. And then, like, God, what? What the fuck is happening? What is going on? But it's just, I... I, I was in love with it from the second it started, and the fact that it got the Palm Door, incredible. I, I love that this is another episode in the series of battles between Lynch and Roger Ebert. I love that antagonistic relationship that they had, that Roger Ebert actually led a vocal charge against the film at Cannes. Um, I, just everything about this movie, fantastic. So, quick, quick question, and I, I want to get your immediate uh, reactions to this. Willem Dafoe, top five underrated actor of all time? 
Oh, he's yeah, easily second or third in that top five for me. I he I man, I fucking I I love Willem Dafoe so much. I I could watch that guy do fucking anything. He's incredible. Yeah, the Florida Project I saw uh, a couple months ago, and his performance in that. There's just that scene where he's uh, he sees the old guy yes. checking out the kids, and he knows what he's there for, and he just politely escorts him to the soda machine, and it's that long shot, and you're just waiting for Defoe to come out, and he just you know he just politely walks that guy over, buys him a soda, is talking to him really nice, and then he just lays into him and tells him to get the fuck out of there it's so good yeah 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 that that yeah that movie is fucking great too i'm sure that we're gonna discuss lynch more um and i again i watched besides uh besides inland empire which i couldn't find streaming and don't own that was the one thing i didn't rewatch. um so i'm gonna put that aside. Okay. Gonna put, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's very very long holy shit um so I'm going to put that aside. So um, I could not sleep Thursday night and I woke up at two in the morning and never went back to sleep. And so it was like three 30 and I'm like, I need to put something on. Cause I'm not just going to lay on the couch and do nothing. So I watched a movie that I I'd been kind of putting off just cause I never found the right time. And I watched uh 2018's upgrade. Have you seen upgrade? Yeah. Love it. I, I fucking really dug this movie. Have you seen it? Have you seen it Ian? No, but I is it Logan Marshall Green? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I dig him, man. Ever since seeing him in Prometheus, I'm I'm all about that dude. Well, I I loved him in in uh in the Invitation. Um, but yeah, it's basically it's it's the we're we're in the the not too distant future, and he plays somebody very hands on. He fixes he fixes old cars. He's not not about technology, not about anything like that. And uh, his wife is murdered. But we end up finding out that she's she's murdered by by people who are like mostly or partly machine, and so um, in 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 this sort of uh, weird, uh, not weird, but in this moment where his wife is is killed, he is paralyzed. Uh, he's a quadriplegic, and so there's this um, sort of uh, hermit esque tech um, savant who puts this chip in him called STEM, and basically it. It gets him to walk again, but not only that, but he becomes this essentially like this fighting machine, and he he's going on this like vigilante esque um, mission to basically find the people who murdered his wife. And it's a it is a bit of a thriller too because we end up finding out a lot more than than he knows. Like, you know, why was his wife a target, or was she the target of this of this event? Um, the effects are really good. I mean, this was this was Bloomhouse tilt, so not even a, a very big budget. Um, but I gotta say, between this and um, the the Invisible Man that he just did, Lee Wanell is on a pretty good streak. And I don't know if you've seen it yet, Ian, but I still I'm still like really giddy about the Invisible Man that he did. And I love I love the dialogue, I love the storytelling, I love the effects. This was a fun, trippy. I I, I there's a great great scene where uh, Logan Marshall Green first realizes that he can basically kick ass. And he's like pleading with this guy to not like, please stop, please stop fighting me. Cause he's just, cause he's just owning him. I, I really can't recommend this enough. Like I was riveted at fucking four in the morning and that should say something. Cause I was, I was really fucking tired, but I, I, I wholeheartedly recommend this movie. It's, it's such a good performance too. It's a really difficult thing to do physically what he's doing. Cause he has, he has this little chip 
that, you know, is allowing him to move, but he can give over. He can say, basically, the chip take control of my body when these guys are attacking him. So, yeah, he's like, he's just breaking all their bones, like mutilating them. And while he's doing it, his face is just pleading with them to stop. It's so good. Um, and he got, he yeah, you're on that like tiny little budget, he managed to make this like future that it reminded me a lot of like the future from the running man you know this kind yeah. of like low rent future um where you can tell there's not a lot of money involved but also the world is fully realized um yeah he's a great genre filmmaker like all of you know the conjuring scripts and insidious scripts and everything he's he's i, I just love somebody that goes full tilt to the genre it's really great yeah for sure well great that's that's awesome so here we go we got breakdown Wild at Heart and Upgrade. Those are our, our three uh, recommended films this week. Uh, but now we're going we're gonna to pivot back to 1980, and we are going to discuss The Elephant Man. But before we get into the actual film of uh, The Elephant Man, I want to read something really quick. Uh, I'm, I'm putting my friend here on the spot. This is from the Seattle Times, uh, July 14th, 2009. Sieber mimics Merrick's contorted posture, but with unusual subtlety. More striking and telling is the voice this actor, uh, this able actor uses. Deep, soft, quizzical, with a slight stutter. It's the voice of a man new to intelligent conversation, but with much to say. MJ, you have a little bit of familiarity with uh, The Elephant Man. Can you, do you mind taking a few minutes to just to discuss that? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I played the Elephant Man. This was like 10 years ago uh, with Strawberry Theater Workshop in uh, uh, in Seattle. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, w when the project came up, I talked to Greg Carter, who runs the theater. And I just was like, you know, I'm I'm in love with the story. I always have been. And and uh, and so we decided that it would be a good idea for all of us to work on it. Um, the script is very different than the movie. Um I think the movie's better, <laughs> but it's a good script. You know, it's a it's a it's a short script. It runs fast, um, and it 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 does a really great job to highlight the the thing that really strikes me in the movie as well. Just the whole story really strikes me is that um, everybody is so moved by their interactions with Merrick because it's so unfathomable that somebody that looks so grotesque that's been uh, abused their entire life can still have such light and beauty and gentleness and kindness in them, uh, especially like during the Industrial Revolution. Um, the script is great. It, it uh, requires the actor to not wear any makeup or prosthetics, which I think is such a smart move because... Um, that's expensive and hard to do and to do it you like to do it in any kind of way that would look good on stage is 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 a nightmare so it's really smart to just let the audience do that work uh and then there's also a little uh, note at the beginning of the script that says any actor that's playing this part should seek out a chiropractor um and uh because you will do damage to your back and it's true i have damage from my back still from doing this for you know two months um because as you know, Merrick's back was shaped kind of like an upside down question mark almost. And so, uh, you know, you, when you find that physicality, when you finally do, you know, crack into something that, that you can manage for two hours on stage, um, it's really just kind of finding that middle ground between being physically safe for yourself and going far enough to create something 
that uh, needs to frighten people and needs to, you know. Um, so it was an awesome experience. I love doing it. It's one of the favorite things I've ever done on stage for sure. And uh, was surrounded by great actors as well. David Pichette played Treves and Alexander Travaris uh, played the actress as well. It was an uh, amazing cast. So, yeah. Yeah. Great. I just figured couldn't couldn't let that go by. Couldn't couldn't let somebody who actually been in the show not talk about it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But the, the you know the voice thing was really interesting. I remember um, I remember when we were working on it. It, it had started with a, a much lower voice. I, I, I had started it with a much lower voice, and the director was just saying, "I think we need to contrast. We need to contrast what you're doing physically with your voice." So everything I was doing physically was really informing this kind of like lower, like guttural thing when he's trying to talk. Um, and it was such a wise decision to just say, just play the exact opposite of that. Give him a lighter voice, give him something, you know, that feels young and innocent so that it can contrast this monster that people are seeing. Well, great. Thank you for taking a, a few minutes. Ian, is there anything that you wanted to ask about that? Well, no, I just, uh, you kind of answered the, the question that I was going to ask about the physicality of it and how you felt about playing it without makeup, but really I wanted to ask you about where you have to go to get into that headspace and how much research you did on, on the real Merrick and, and really what it takes, because I'm, I'm not an actor, so I don't, I don't know what it takes to get there. Uh, yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of information about it. There's the book, of course, that I think the movie is mostly based on, um, that Treves, I think, wrote with somebody else. His name was Joseph Merrick. I know that from the get-go. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot you can read about it for sure, but um, at some point you kind of just have to put all of that away and let what's on the page inform you. Um, so all of that goes into it. But yeah, I uh, the physicality, it was it was really hard. And also, and I noticed this again from watching the movie, um, I, I, for some reason, it was very easy emotionally for me to tap into. I think everybody has that feeling that they probably are a monster or look like a monster or have critical feelings about themselves as a person. And that all just kind of taps in. And I found myself crying through a lot of the play. And it was very vindicating because I haven't seen the movie in a while. When I watched it this morning and I saw that John Hurt is like crying through most of the movie. And I was like, yes, we were on the same page. We did it. You and me, John Hurt. Oh. I often compare myself to John Hurt. Why not? Hey, you know, you got to have somebody to look up to. And, and John Hurt, yeah. he's, he's and, pretty and good. And luckily John Hurt found me. <laughs> no. <laughs> Well, great. So, so here we go. Let's talk about the film. Uh, yes, it was directed by David Lynch, uh, written by him and Christopher DeVore and Eric Bergren, based on uh, The Elephant Man and Other Reminiscences uh, by Frederick Treves, and another book called The Elephant Man, A Study in Human Dignity by Ashley Montague. We've already hinted at some of the people in the movie, so let's just confirm that. We have Anthony Hopkins, who plays Treves, John Hurt playing Merrick, Anne Bancroft playing Madge Kendall, who is a uh, an actress on the stage in London. Hannah Gordon playing Anne, that would be Treves' wife. John Gilgood, old Royal Shakespeare guy there playing Cargom. Uh, Wendy Hiller playing Mother's Head. She's like the head nurse. Uh, Freddie Jones plays Mr. Bites, who is sort of the uh, depicted in this film as the evil guy who basically owned Merrick. Uh, we have Michael Elphick as Jim. He is the... Uh, he's the shithead who works at the hospital, who lets people view Merrick. And then the other two I wanted to throw out there, because it just made me kind of really happy. Uh, we got a really young Dexter Fletcher 
playing Bites' little young right-hand man, which was, when I saw the name in the credits, I was like, oh, I wonder if I'll know it's him. And then I was like, oh, yeah, that is a, that is a young Dexter Fletcher right there. And, I mean, how can we not, even though he's only in the movie for, like, 35 seconds, R2-D2, I mean, we got, we got Kenny Baker in this fucking thing, which is just amazing. So Lynch is in the book two other times. And I, I want to save this kind of conversation for the end because there's a question I'm going to end with. So um, uh, David Lynch is in this book three times. Uh, he, uh, his other two films are Eraserhead and Blue Velvet. Those are the other two films of his that are in the book. Uh, in terms of accolades, a lot of Academy Award nominations, um, but, but no wins. Uh, it was up for Best Picture and Best Director and Best Adapted Screenplay. All of those uh, lost to Ordinary People. Uh, John Hurt was up for Best Actor. He lost to De Niro on Raging Bull. If you want to hear my thoughts on Raging Bull, just go look back into our episode about that, and you'll hear uh, you'll hear the things I thought about that movie. Um, You're just going to keep poking that bear, aren't you, man? I I will poke that bear until we stop doing this show. <laughs> um, it also lost editing to Raging Bull, and it lost production uh, production design and costume design to Tess and score to Fame. Remember Fame? That was a thing. Um, at the Golden Globes, it was up for Best Picture, Director, Actor, and Screenplay. The BAFTAs were a little kinder to this film. It won Best Film, Best Actor, and Best Production Design while losing Director, Screenplay, Cinematography, and Editing. It picked up DGA and WGA noms, and it made the National Board of Review's Top 10 Films of the Year. I was surprised to see this on the IMDb Top 250. Um, I found it at number 162 in... What surrounds that film? What's on either side of it? Well, uh, we have Train Spotting just below it at number 163, which I'm very excited to do. That episode, Train Spotting, is one of my top 10 films of all time, and I have seen it, what I have said about some other films, an unhealthy number of times. And then right in front of it at 161, we have 2011's Warrior with uh, Tom Hardy and, uh, God, who's who's opposite him in that? Joel Edgerton. There you go. Yeah, yeah. That, that film didn't leave a massive impression on me. I don't know if it did for either of you, if either of you have seen that one. I still haven't. I've seen it. Uh, yeah, I, I liked it very much. Um, I think I think the the three performances, you know, uh, Edgerton, uh, uh, Tom Hardy, and Nick Nolte are, like, all great. It's, you know, a lot of... A lot of unhealthy toxic masculinity going around in that <laughs> but they hug but they hug at the end so it's okay that yeah that's the important thing yes um uh on the rotten tomatoes there it got a 92 percent critical and a 93 percent audience now um i'm so glad that you mentioned ebert there ian um because i wanted to read uh the opening of ebert's two-star review of the elephant man the Elephant Man forces me to question this position on two grounds. First, on the meaning of Merrick's life, and second, on the ways in which the film employs it. It is conventional to say that Merrick, so hideously misformed that he was exhibited as a sideshow attraction, was courageous. No doubt he was. But there is a distinction here that needs to be drawn between the courage of a man who chooses to face hardship for a good purpose and the courage of a man who is simply doing the best he can under the circumstances. When, uh... Wilfred Sheed, an American novelist who was crippled by polio, once discussed this distinction in a Newsweek essay. He is sick and tired, he wrote, of being praised for his courage when he did not choose to contract polio and has little choice but to deal with his handicap as well as he can. True courage, he suggests, requires a degree of choice. 
Yet the whole structure of the Elephant Man is based on a life that is said to be courageous, not because of the hero's achievements, but simply because of the bad trick played on him by fate. In the film and in the play, which are similar in many details, John Merrick learns to move in a society, to have ladies into tea, to attend theater, and to build a scale model of a cathedral. Merrick may have had greater achievements in real life, but the film glosses them over. How, for example, did he learn to speak so well and eloquently? History tells us that the real Merrick's jaw was so misshapen that an operation was necessary just to allow him to talk. In the film, however, after a few snuffles to warm up, he quotes the 23rd Psalm and Romeo and Juliet. And this is how he ends this paragraph. He says, this is pure sentimentalism. So I feel like we've, we've mentioned there's, and to be, to be fair, and I'm not, this is not a, a knock on the movie. There's not, there's very little plot in the movie. Um, Treves, Anthony Hopkins discovers uh, Merrick at a, basically a sideshow freak show in quotes and uh, sees him and, and basically gets him into the hospital and starts not working to save him. He's not, it's not about an operation. It's not about removing the tumors or the, the disfigurement of the skin, but just about getting him to sort of lead a more quote, normal life. And um, of course we have the things where the hospital doesn't want to let him stay. And we have the thing with, uh, with Jim letting people in to see him and, and bites kind of uh, taking him away. But really it's just, here was this guy's complicated life, and here was this other guy trying to help him fit in. Um, so I did. I I kind of wanted to launch off with that that last sentence of this being pure sentimentalism. How do we feel about that? Is it is it close to the mark? Is it on the mark? Is it way off? I'm seeing. I'm, MJ, I'm seeing some skeptical looks. So I would, I, <laughs> I'd love to get your yeah, thoughts. Yeah, no, yeah, I am a little skeptical. Uh, it's very interesting. It's a very interesting because, like, as as Roger Ebert is, you know, describing or they're they're talking about the surgery to uh, adjust his jaw so he could speak. I was like, oh boy, I don't want to watch that movie. Um, I don't, I don't want to watch this thing that is nothing, nothing but about. It's very interesting to talk about what courage means, right? To say that somebody being a victim of circumstance can't be courageous just because of the overcoming those circumstances. I think that's horseshit. Um, and, uh, you know, talking about how much more difficult it was for the actual Merrick to even speak, um, that movie feels to me like a real uh, kind of pornographic view of, I don't know, just what's like, like body porn, like not body porn. That is not, that's something very different, <laughs> but like, um, but just investigating misery in that, in that way is so uninteresting. Um, yeah. I don't know. What's, what's, what's Roger Ebert got against the elephant man? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's interesting because, there, there was a, there was one moment in particular where I thought, oh, okay, and and maybe this is my bias, but when when he stands up at the theater and they give him a standing ovation, that was the one point where I was like, okay, uh, that no, might have been a step too much, but that was the only point in the movie where I felt like that, where I felt like it was like trying to intentionally tug at my heartstrings. Totally. But other than that. We're really just watching him be. I mean, there are so many great, great um, bits of, of text in this movie that I, I guess if, if you're totally heartless, you could just say, oh, we're just looking to, you know, it's intentionally trying to be really sweet. But there's a line that he says towards the end, and I'll just say it now because I really, really like it. He says, 
I am happy every hour of the day. My heart is full because I know I am loved. Like, fuck, man. If I could go about my day-to-day actively thinking that, I, I wouldn't let the, the little shit get to me, let alone the fact that this guy, and I'm not, not trying to be superficial, looks the way that he does and has had to endure the life that he has. And so I, I think Ebert is talking about a different movie. I think uh, I think the movie that he wants to see is probably more along the lines of something that is directed by someone like David Cronenberg as opposed to David Lynch, because if we talk about that surgery scene specifically and we think about the body horror that would be involved in that, I mean, that's that's more Cronenberg's M.O. than it is Lynch's. Yeah, and they're very they're they're definitely, you know, very close on that scale. <laughs> but um, it's funny because Lynch is not. Uh, a, a sentimental director. I think the material is, you know, it's certainly not without sentiment. And there are, there are, uh, you know, numerous moments like you're describing, Adam, that that do feel like they're they're taking you on a ride you were already on, and you don't need, you know, the extra push. You're already there, and then something will happen, and you're like, yeah, I was here already. It's your movie's good enough, the story's good enough that you've already moved me, and I don't need the whole audience to stand up and. Um, the thing that really, really struck me, uh, especially about the beginning of the movie was, you know, they do such a great job of, of building up this person behind the veil. You know, you don't see Merrick for a while. Um, you just see people recoiling as they're walking away from this freak show and Treves is trying, trying to see him. And, um, and then when he finally does see him, he sees him in this like dungeon by himself getting a private show where Merrick just kind of stands up and walks around but he's clothed he's wearing like a loincloth right so then when Merrick gets back when they take him to the hospital and Treves shows him off um I loved the mirroring of how that worked of that he's still on display he's still a freak people are still looking at him as an oddity like our protagonist hasn't learned anything yet and then there's a moment when they say surprisingly his genitals are still completely intact and then they remove the loincloth and then he's more on display and more scrutinized than he ever was before in the freak show and it just really broke my heart um and it's all intentional obviously but it's it's uh it's a great it's a great way to start that movie you know to say that he's not being accepted into this london society for anything other than an oddity at this point well, yeah, and, yeah. and that, that moment where he's in front of all of the other doctors, that scene ends with a big, giant round of applause. Like, good job, Treves. Like, good work. And it's, it's interesting, again, not only is he still on display, but just like, just like before, too, it's like it, it, it bites and Treves. I, I wrote this, well, I, I don't want to say this yet, but, but it was really interesting because, you know, in a way, Treves is getting the recognition for essentially just discovering this person who probably could, could use some help. And I wrote this line down and I and I I think I think Treves does kind of start as an opportunist. But it's really interesting because by the end, you know, we get all of those, you know, we Merrick is so um appreciative and, and he says so many very kind things. And I can't tell if it if it's a character choice where where Treves is he's a bit too stodgy, you know, very uptight, old school British, no offense, Ian, British guy. Um, or if it's, (laughs) sorry, buddy. Um, or if, if he doesn't, I don't, I'm still working through this. I can't tell if Treves reciprocates the friendship as much as Merrick does. 
I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think he's capable of it. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to agree with that. Yeah, I think that he, he does as much as he can. Like he certainly comes out of his shell. There's, there's this that great scene when he's talking to Merrick and he's, uh, he's warming him up for the interview that he's going to have with Gilgood, right? And so he's just trying to get him to say, you know, hello, my name is John Merrick. It's a pleasure to meet you. Um, and Anthony Hopkins is so good in that scene because he he's just trying to get him to say it audit, like in a way that he can actually understand. And he keeps pressing him and pressing him. And at one point he's like, say it. It's, it's very good. Say it again, you know, and he's like, he doesn't have a comforting bone in his body. He's just not that type of person. And so I think he grows a lot in the movie as much as he can, but it's really seeing the people around him, like his wife, you know, profoundly change by these experiences. Well, in, in my mind, there are two things that are really working against Treves. Uh, one of them is as a character is I read that Hopkins found him to just not be that interesting and so i do i do feel that i mean i'm not i don't ever want to call someone like anthony hopkins unprofessional but i definitely felt an air of disinterest in playing the character i didn't feel like he played it as passionately as he could even in the scene where he's telling the michael elfchick character off i mean that feels like it's it's an overcompensation it's almost too little too late and he goes so much bigger than he needs to and then as far as the actual Treves is concerned, I know we try on this show to allow the films to sort of stand on their own without comparison to either uh, an original source material or, or what happened in real life, but I feel like it's, it's kind of impossible not to with this film because the real Treves seems like he was trying to sort of glorify himself and make himself a hero in his writings. And, you know, even, even to, I don't even couldn't even find a reason why he changed Joseph's name to John. You know, of course, he has... There, it's, it's difficult, obviously, when you're writing from a first-person's perspective and he, he's talking about this as a reminiscence, but I don't feel like we should put Treves on any kind of pedestal for what he did in real life with the real Joseph Merritt. Yes, he, he found him and, and, gave, and, and helped to give him a better life than he might have had already, but the the thing that I can't forgive this film for is the way that they treated uh, the Bites character. Uh, the the real guy, Tom Norman, was actually, he sounded like a fairly decent human being who knew that these people had no other way of making a living. So he's like, well, if this is the only way we can do it, then then that's the way we'll do it, and we'll split everything 50-50. He, was, he sounded like a decent guy that his family has been trying to clear his name for the better part of 100 years now, and it's because of Treves even in the original source material, he portrayed Norman as a drunk and a brute, which wasn't that guy at all. And so now that's translated into the film because they really, the screenwriters, and I, I blame Lynch as, as for this as much as I do anybody else involved in the production, Mel Brooks as well, is like all they did was take Treve's writing and they kind of took it at face value. And so as much as I do enjoy this film, I don't mind the sentimentality of it all. It is... Uh, unforgivably Hollywood, which is a thing that you never thought you could say about a David Lynch film. Well, until yeah. a few years later with Dune. Um, well, that's a lot of that. I I don't put as much of that on Lynch as I do on Dino oh, De Laurentiis. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but I'm glad you mentioned uh, the Bites character and and who he was based on because. In conjunction with that, um, the fact that this movie opens on a fictitious event uh, surrounding Merrick's mother, 
um, and, and how that may have been the reason why he, uh, he got this, um, the Proteus syndrome uh, as they would later call it. Um, but, but the change to bites, uh, essentially how he got the, um, his condition. And then even, even setting up the, like, you know, the, um, like being, being abducted from the hospital and taken on to a, like another, a, another freak show. Like, I, clearly those events didn't really happen. I mean, by all accounts, Merrick's life, while probably being tough, he lived fairly comfortably. Um, and so this, this comes up all the time, but like, I, you know, I, I, we, I don't know how much we've really discussed it on the show, but how much are films beholden to the way that events actually occurred that they're, that they're based on, right? Like, you know, uh, Braveheart's a pretty great example of of you know being historically inaccurate, but if we have to know that we're watching a movie and that the story that we're going to get is not going to be necessarily historically accurate, so I it's weird because I during the research I I saw all of that too and I was like, well that's that's kind of a bummer and the bites thing too, like his bites in the movie is fucking despicable. I mean he's a goddamn monster but clearly not really the way the guy was in real life. But is the movie, is the movie more interesting with a, a villain in it? Probably. I mean, there are some more stakes to what's going on. So I don't know. I know. I just, I'm curious how you two feel about that. I mean, how, how much does a film owe the source material? I mean, I guess in this case it did, it did do the source material. Like they, they they were pretty open sure. about the fact that they were taken from these two books that were the source material. Um, could they have done like more research to find this out? Totally. Um, I also think it's just so complicated. You know, I, I, I don't necessarily think that films that claim to be, you know, biographies or, or true stories, <sighs> I kind of feel like all films don't need to be beholden to anything other than what the filmmakers want to do. Unfortunately, it's the audience that has the problem not understanding that, right? Um, like an audience, uh, you know, I mean, we're living in an age where like actors that are on television and fictional shows get hate mail because their character did something the audience doesn't like that week. Like we have such a gigantic disconnect with what's real and what isn't now. But um yeah, I mean, I think the artist needs to be the artist and make the kind of movie they want to make. And sometimes it's irresponsible historically, like in this case, for sure. Um, but also, um, there's so much metaphor and symbolism in this movie, and you're presenting something that's trying to speak more about the human condition than it is about, you know, a specific event accurately. Um, but yeah, it's complicated. And that's probably an unpopular opinion, but... <laughs> No, no, not at all. I think it is. It is because I, 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 I'm caught between the the two sides of this this particular debate. Is that yeah, a film should be viewed as just a film. It's it isn't beholden to anything other than what the artists want to do. I I completely agree with that. My my issue is is if they had done more research, they would have found that there were more interesting themes dramatically much more conflict, even though he did live a relatively comfortable life, if they had taken the time to examine uh, the idea of exploitation and even self-exploitation. I mean, John Merrick, he did go before a couple of lectures with Treves. He was put on display in a very similar way than he had been in a circus sideshow. But he decided to leave those lectures and to leave Treves' company of his own accord because he felt 
exactly that. Like this was this was no different than what he was already doing. So at least he would go back and at least make a living out of it rather than just being on display for the medical community. And so I I really am interested in the idea of what it means to exploit yourself because you, you have to to make ends meet. And I, I really wanted a lot more uh, from Treves as a character as well. He only really has that one scene or maybe a scene and a half because Mother's Head calls him out on, well, you know, when society starts coming and visiting Merrick, it's like, oh, they're, they don't hide their disdain. They're just doing this so that they can tell their friends that they've done it and try and one-up each other. Oh, did you go visit the Elephant Man? No, I did. Ha ha ha. I got one up on you. I, I went and I saw the freak show. And, and then he also has that scene where he's talking to his wife, am I a good man or a bad man? There's just not enough there's not enough internal conflict in this film. It's all external. They had to invent these two characters to make it more interesting. And I've, I've bitched before on this show about films not having more enough conflict in them. But there's in, in, the, real, in the real story of Joseph Merrick, there's, there's already enough of it there so that you don't really have to invent it. It's almost, it feels kind of, as I said before, it feels very Hollywood and very lazy. Well, and it's it's so funny you mentioned that because we talked a little bit last week about my recommend, and again, part of Lynch's filmography was The Straight Story, a movie that really doesn't have any conflict a- at all. And yet that movie is fucking fascinating. It, it's it's incredible. And again, maybe it's it's you know, Lynch leveraging whatever, you know, having his his ties with ABC and with Disney and what and whatever he needed to do, but like to be able to just tell that story as simply and as straightly as 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 possible, I think was was conducive to that story, and I think could have been a, a little like some of that here would have gone a long way. So I will say I will say now that I've gone negative, I will go a slightly. I try to go slightly positive once I've gone negative. I do really I I love the juxtaposition of a fading industry of circus sideshows. And, and freak shows and whatever you want to call them, juxtaposed with the beginning of industry and the Industrial Revolution and, you know, the one of them, the, the, the wonders and the models of the, uh, and marvels of the modern world sort of taking away from physical and human oddities. I think that's, that is my favorite thing that I think Lynch did with this film. Anyway, sorry, MJ, I, I cut you off there. I apologize. Oh no, I don't even know what I was going to say anymore. Um, yeah, I, I, that's what, when we talked a little earlier about like, uh, Lynch is kind of like fingerprints all over the film. Like I, again, he's, he's my favorite. I've seen everything he's done numerous, numerous times, but some of those shots of industry and those London streets, they are so gross. And, and, uh, uh, the, the black smoke pumping out of some of those chimneys and everything, the way that he like will film these, you know, sparks flashing up against metal. It's so much stuff that you see pop up in later films. It even pops up in blue velvet, um, you know, when they needed to project something on the side of a building just to make it look more visually interesting. And Lynch just made this weird contraption shadow that you see pumping. The idea of industry just kind of flows throughout so much of what Lynch does. And I think that he, again, like loves juxtaposing nature and industry. Um, And I don't even think that he has an opinion about it, even that like, like that industry is bad, but they are polar opposites. And, um, you know, Merrick is some somehow kind of a weird mesh of both of those things. He's nature and industry. Um, he's, you know, nature gone awry. 
it's been really uh, this this last week, not just rewatching all, all of this Lynch material, but also um, reading like like I I uh, what is it? I ha- so Eraserhead, Mulholland Drive, uh, Blue Velvet, and Twin Peaks, Firewalk with Me are all Criterion's, and I, I have them all. And like I had never read the the holy shit, the very in depth. A lot of those comes from the Lynch on Lynch book. Um, and God, he, he is just a fascinating person to, to read. Um, he's, and it's great because, and, and well, the elephant man isn't one of those kind of movies, but when, when asked about like, you know, what, what does Mulholland drive mean? Or, or what were you doing in twin peaks? And, and you know, what's this with blue velvet? His responses are so genuine that I don't feel like, like the, the mysteries that go unanswered aren't intentional right they're not like oh i'm not telling you because i have a secret it's more like why would i give you my i don't like your experience is is the important one your response is what matters um i got i had such a blast watching mulholland drive again on wednesday that that is my that's my end all be all lynch film um are we are we finally gonna get your you've been playing your cards really close to your chest on mulholland drive as far as the way to watch the your opinion on how you should watch Mulholland Drive. I'm wondering if we can finally get that out of you because we've got a couple of listeners who have reached out to me about it. I I, I know. Um, and the answer is is no because to quote Lynch himself, and I love this. I think it was actually in the essay that came with Mulholland Drive. He talks about it being talks about being like a magician, right? And that if if you knew how to do the trick. You would be so less interested, right? And and he was talking about how Studio Studio Canal, um, Studio Canal was the company that basically came up with this idea of, hey, you should put out these clues. You should say there are, there are ten clues to watch Mulholland Drive with, right? And and sh- and he said like and he said like it wasn't my idea, and I came up with things that were important, but that if you're watching, um that you're still going to come up with your answers to these questions or to these clues. Right. So, um, like that's, that's one thing. And, um, he, let's just say this, this is the closest I'll get because it also gets said in that interview is he talks a lot about sunset Boulevard in regards to Mulholland drive. And I should, that's all I should have to say. Keep, keep sunset Boulevard in mind. Just keep it in mind when you watch it. Um, I, yeah, Lynch, you know, Lynch is, uh, he's that person that every time somebody wants to talk about what any of his art means, he doesn't want to tell them. And it's not, and I think you're totally right. He under, I mean, he's a visual artist and visual artist, he's an abstract visual artist. So everything that he makes is surreal. And he's doesn't, he gets his ideas from dreams. He gets his ideas fishing for things while he meditates. Um, so the things that he makes are very specific to him. I know that they are, but I also believe that he doesn't know what some of them mean. Um, but the worst thing he could possibly do is tell you what he was intending because it's abstract for a reason. It is, it is made for you to put your own meaning on it. Um, one of my favorite scenes in Mulholland drive is when they go to the theater and they're watching the trumpet player, the trumpet player comes out and he plays a little ditty and then this guy comes out who's like hosting this weird show and says, it's all a recording. And then you hear the trumpet sound again and he's not playing. And then Rebecca Del Rio comes out and sings that song and it's amazing. And we're all so moved. And then she faints and falls and it keeps singing. And you've just, and like that is a metaphor for all of Lynch's work for me is that he's telling you it's not what you think it is. And then it's so good and you get so enthralled 
and then he pulls the rug out and you're reminded it's not what you think it is. Um, the only other thing, I, oh, the only other thing I want to say, the reason he's like one of my favorite artists, my favorite is that even the story of Hell Mulholland Drive was made is so inspiring that it was a pilot for ABC, I think. Yeah. And, um, and they made it. And then like some ABC executive watched it on like a tiny TV while he was making breakfast for himself and didn't like it. And so then they didn't do it. And he was just sitting there with this thing that he knew was something. And by and then realized I can make this into a feature. I can do this. I have to get the same actors back. It's been two years now. We have to rebuild all these sets, but I can pivot this thing and turn it into something completely different. And that to me is so inspiring as an artist. I mean, I think it's very easy to to start something, produce something and have have the bridge fall from under your feet and feel like, well, now this thing that I've spent all this time and money and effort doing is lost. Uh, there's nothing else I can do with it now. And, well, and it's, 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 it's so it's Lynch's career is so interesting um, that obviously a eraser had took, you know, four or five years to, to do, but that, that this, this abstract fucking crazy ass film is essentially what got him this, that movie got him the elephant man. You know, some of the producers showed it to Mel Brooks. Yep, this is the guy who's going to direct this film. I, I love that Brooks, by the way, just because, yeah, he did. He went uncredited as to not get people to think this was a comedy. Thank God. Um, but but yeah, but like, it's so funny because you, I also watched some of the short films included on the Eraserhead Criterion. Wow, what the fuck? What was I watching? Creepy as hell. Creepy as they hell. They really are. Um, fuck. Uh, the the alphabet one really like is still like in my head. I didn't. I didn't like that. I didn't. I mean, I liked it, but I didn't like it. Um, but it does. It's weird because like, I think the Elephant Man writes that like that razor edge. Like it is. I I think I agree. I do think this is a Hollywood film. I think that I think it is sentimental, but not overly sentimental. I do think it's trying to tell an uplifting story. Um. But it does deal with, you know, like Lynch obviously was also the sound designer and wanted to do the the makeup as well, but he, he couldn't quite figure that out. Um, but it's so funny because it's like you look at his you look at his filmography and it, I mean, I know we, we've all shat on Dune a little bit, but Dune is clearly the the weird outlier of his entire career because. While I like I guess like from a cinematography standpoint or just, you know, stylistically, the Elephant Man isn't quite a quote Lynch film, but there, like we, we've talked about, there are those elements where Lynch really does his, what he likes gets to shine through. Um, but I, you know, I like, I wonder like Ian, cause I, I know you, I know you and I know who you like, like how, how <laughs> in hypothetical land, how would you have felt if this movie was directed by Terrence Malick? Oh man, that is, that is such a different movie. All together, like I can't, I can't even, I can't even visualize what that would look like. I mean, I know that it would be stunningly beautiful. I know that a lot of the sentiment would still be there. Uh, I hesitate to say that there would be more of it because Terrence Malick's films are about a time and a place and a feeling rather than people necessarily. I don't. It would. It would be a fascinating alternate timeline, alternate alternate sort of history. I mean, I would. I be fascinated to see it but i can't and i can't i can't even begin to imagine what that would look like 
and I didn't I didn't just pull Malik out of a hat. I, that that was came up in the research. Like he apparently was offered to to do it, but turned it down. So while we're while we're on Lynch as a sort of as a whole, uh, we love lists on this show. So if you guys oh, will bear lists. with me, Far Out lists. magazine from the UK actually this year they ranked his ten features. Because he's done, I mean, numerous short films, and I don't. Did you guys see one of his latest on Netflix, the What Did Jack Do, where he's interviewing the monkey? Yeah. Oh my God, that is. Oh, I haven't is, seen that. There is a great. It really shows off. If for anybody who feels like David Lynch is is inaccessible, this is what they need to watch because there is a a wonderful sense of humor that runs through that little seventeen or eighteen minute short. Well, and and also, and I know we we. Louis C.K. can fuck off, but his his little run on Louis, it's like, what is going on? I loved it. It was so great. Oh, yeah. No, he's he's fantastic. Even as an actor, he's fantastic. He was in Harry Dean Stanton's last film, Lucky, and that was a wonderful piece of film. But here is, according to Far Out Magazine in the UK, this is their top 10, all 10 of his features ranked. So at number 10, I don't think this will be a surprise to either of you. We have Dune, which... Fuck Dune, there is literally yep. nothing that Denis can do wrong. Like, the bar <laughs> is so low. And I, that is my, that is, I'm really head over heels excited for that film. I cannot wait. Um, despite the fact that Timothy Chalamet is in it, I'm still, I'm all in. All my chips you on the table on that Ian, thing. you don't have to let my, my distaste for him run over. I don't, I, I, I. You don't have to. I went on the record. You don't have to if you don't want to. I I'm not I'm not that moved by him. Again, I haven't seen enough of his stuff, but he's like, yeah, he doesn't he doesn't really do anything for me. Anyway, at number nine, I'm a little disappointed. This is as low as it is. Wild at Heart is all the way down at number nine. Yeah, right. <sighs> what? What? No, I have to say, here. like, I uh, I don't want to interrupt the list. I'll t- I'll say this after. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. We we you can jump in wherever I, you like. Uh, uh, about four years ago, I, I, I uh, tore my ACL on stage and I was like bed bound for a couple of months after I had surgery. And so I was like, I'm going to go ahead and watch all these Lynch movies all over again. You know, I got nothing but time. And I, I wanted to say this when you're talking about Wild at Heart. Wild at Heart, like, really sprung very far to the top for me. Revisiting that, it's so different and bizarre than most of his other stuff. Um, and it's it's really aggressive in a way that I think a lot of his stuff isn't either. Um, but yeah, I love that movie. I love it. Yeah. That's, that's why I love that one. And lost highway. They are, I think, I think they are the most aggressive of his films and that's what I appreciate. Like he is just swinging for it all the way. Having faced so much adversity, getting all his other movies made. Fuck it. Why not? Why not swing for the fences? At number eight, again, I can't believe this is as low as it is. The straight story. (sighs) I mean, I, I wonder if there is just a sense of it doesn't feel like a Lynch film that might that might be affecting that list. I I, I don't know because I, I I mentioned last week that was my like my premeditated bias against the film was that oh I don't I'm not gonna like it because because to MJ to be perfectly fair that's what I thought until I watched it last week and then it blew my fucking mind. It was the first time I watched it, so I don't know. Maybe there's just enough of that. I, I don't know. Can't say. I mean, it's like, honestly, a list like this is like 10 features. Let's do a top 10. Well, we all know what number 10 is going to be. And then I honestly feel like the rest of the nine are just debatable. Like there <laughs> might be a couple that you could float up toward the top. I'm sure Mulholland Drive probably is number one. That's my guess. Uh, you're you're going to be surprised. Oh, okay. Good. Okay. 
All right, number seven is Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. This is going to be one of my hotter takes on this show, and I'm, re- I'm really sorry, Twin Peaks just it doesn't do it for me, man. I did the whole of the first season, I did, like, I think six episodes of season two, and I was like, I just, I, I'm not emotionally invested in this. Like, I just, it doesn't do it for me. If I've learned anything being a lifelong Lynch fan, it's that I can't <laughs> think poorly of someone that doesn't like any of his stuff. Like, if there's anything that comes up where somebody's like, I don't connect to it, I'm like, yeah, I get, I get it. I don't know why I do. Uh, you know what's, yeah. what's interesting is, because I've, I've seen... I, I, I've seen the I've seen Twin Peaks. I've seen the series once through, and I, I like the first season. And I, yes, Lynch wasn't as involved in the second season. Yada yada yada. But I've not seen that show in probably like six or seven years. So I kind of forgot a lot of the details. And I watched Firewalk with me yesterday. That movie, I I honestly think that movie could stand on its own if you hadn't actually seen the series. It it would be confusing in a Lynch way, but I I think I thought it was solid. I think it's a solid film. I think it's terrifying. I think it's actually the scariest movie he's ever made. Um, I think it's uh, what what Lynch is doing with that story, specifically about Laura Palmer and uh, Twin Peaks is, you know, doing a lot of other things, too. But that story is about a a girl who is being raped by her father every single day and she can't process it in any kind of literal way because it's so terrifying. So she invents I mean, this is my interpretation. She invents this demon named Bob that sneaks into her room every night and rapes her when it's her father. And so you, this movie to me is just about this, this woman finally, finally realizing this delusion that she's put herself in to cope uh, starts going away and she starts really realizing what's going on. And um, it's such a sad, terrifying story. Um, and uh, I've listened to Cheryl uh, Cheryl Lee talk about playing Laura Palmer quite a bit. And, uh, and what that specific story does for a lot of people that have been through similar um, uh, abuse, uh, it's just really, really uh, cathartic for them to see see somebody go through this and unfortunately not make it out alive on the other end. Um, so, yeah, when people talk about like, you know, uh, directors like Kubrick or or even Christopher Nolan and sometimes Lynch about them being cold, emotionally cold, I just don't get it. Um, I get it with maybe some of the other ones, but with Lynch, I like I just don't get it. It's so. He's not coming at something from an intellectual place. He's coming like straight from the gut, straight from the instinct. And there's such artistry around it that, yeah, he moves me deeply. So yeah, again, I get why you might not like it. <laughs> well, I, I am, ex- I am excited to see fire walk with me. Um, it's, it's the really, it's the only gap in my Lynch filmography other than the one that's at number six, which is Inland Empire. <laughs> so can I, I, I want to tell you a quick story about Inland Empire. So, uh, I watched Mulholland Drive and Memento in the same weekend when I was uh, 15. And I was like, yes! Like, I was just like, fucking awesome. And that was the first time I'd ever seen any, anything Lynch. Um, so Inland Empire is the next feature that he does. And I was really excited. The length scared me. And then I, I honestly, besides that Laura Dern and Jeremy Irons are in it, and there are like big rabbit heads, I think, at one point. I, I, wow, I, ah, that movie is a, is a, like a haze 
It totally is, right? And it's like, admittedly, Lynch was saying, like, I made this movie so I could learn how to make digital film. Because he's one of those few few directors out there that had done everything on film until, you know, like 2000, like the early 2000s. And he was realizing um, this is the wave, it's changing, and I want instant gratification. I want, I, like, I'm a visual artist. I want to be able to shoot something and immediately look at it and know how I can change it or what I need to do differently. Um, so he made this movie with a cheap-ass DV camera. It's really bad quality. Um, and again, it's it's largely incomprehensible. And then he does that thing at the end, if I can spoil it a little, with, uh, with Laura Dern. And she's stabbed on the street, and she's playing some version of herself who might be a hooker, I think. And she's stabbed on the street, and she's dying. And he's got this long tracking shot. It's all one take, and it's so impressive. And she's dying on the street, and she dies. And then the camera pulls back, and they're in a studio. And it's just, it's again, it's the same thing he does in Mulholland Drive. He just takes you to a place, and then... It's a magician. He pulls the rug out and shows you something completely different. It's all a misdirect, but it's so yeah. masterful. And the rest of the movie is... Who knows? Fair. Again, it's another one I'm excited to see. I really want to fill in my, my Lynch gaps here so that maybe maybe we can come back around. We've been doing uh, episodes where we rank filmmakers' entire filmography of features, so seeing as though he does have a nice round number of ten, that would be... That, that's going to be one hell of an episode if we do that. That's going to be fucking mind-breaking. Please have me back for that if you Of do course, that. but we'll definitely, we, we should do that and take this list to task. So here's the, here's the top five. We've got The Elephant Man at number five. Cap. Then we've got Lost Highway at number four. Uh, I don't know if anybody wants to chime in with any sort of Lost Highway stuff. This movie, this is, I think it's his coolest movie. I mean, it's just got an edge and a style, and Robert Loggia is fucking awesome in it. Was it the story that Robert Loggia, like, waited all day to audition for Lynch to play Frank Booth in Blue Velvet? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and Lynch, just for whatever reason, wasn't there, didn't show up on time, or who knows. So he was sitting around, he was just pissed off, and he laid into him, and I don't even think he auditioned. And so <laughs> when this came around, Lynch was like, I think Robert is going to be good for this. I know what it's like when he gets really angry. and um, Yeah, but I, this is the first Lynch movie I saw in a theater. I saw it in high school, and I brought a big group of friends to see it, and they had no idea what they were getting into, and I was enthralled the whole time, and they were... I don't think I got to pick any movies after that. I was going to say, are you still friends with any of them after that? <laughs> yeah. I think a couple of them became, like, became Lynchophiles after that. Oh, that's awesome. So that was good. Adam, did you want to weigh in on Lost Highway? Uh, it's it's you know I I hate to it's a, it is a dark movie it's it's got some troubling themes, but it also like I I don't know how to say this maybe this just says a lot about it's a fun movie to watch like it really keeps you engaged and and while I, there's similar similar things going on with the I, I don't know, I, I just want to be vague but specific the like spirits of people possibly going into different people uh that he also explores in Mulholland Drive um it's just like slick and fun and and cool like you said it's just but like while well I'm I'm really trying to work the mystery of Mulholland Drive I'm I kind of let this just wash over me more I'm kind of just in it I just you do your thing Lynch I'm I'm in don't worry yeah you know it's it's funny with like the exception I think of Inland Empire you know most of these movies that feel like you know riddle box movies 
as a whole, are really have really easy ways to sum them up, right? Like I remember him kept saying about Mulholland Drive that um, when he was nominated for a Golden Globe for this for Best Director, they did during the ceremony all the directors had to stand up and talk about their film, and I was like, oh, they're gonna have David Lynch talk about his film, and you could tell he didn't want to do it, and he stood up and he said, um, Mulholland Drive is. Uh, it's a nightmare that takes place in the city of dreams or something like that. And then he sat down and I was like, perfect, perfect. I get it. I totally get what you're going for. Well, and anybody else that was, was expecting something more of David Lynch, they're just clearly not, not that educated about him. Like really, you're, you're going to expect him to sit here at a big awards, a ceremony and break it all down for you. What, what are you talking about? That's not going to happen. Wouldn't that have been great if he just like pulled out this big conspiracy board and he's like, all right, here it is. Naomi Watts. <laughs> Go full Kevin Costner with it back and to the left. Exactly. <laughs> all right. So I think it's pretty obvious what's in the top three. Maybe the, the order will surprise you. Maybe it won't. But Mulholland Drive is at number three. Boo. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I like Mulholland Drive, but I take issue with people calling it. I've seen it on a couple of lists, and I think Adam and I have discussed this on another show, but uh, there are a few critics out there who think this is the greatest film of the 21st century so far, and I, oh, I don't know. I can't get on board with that as much as I like it. I just, ah, uh, I can't. I, I wonder about that. Like, is it, you know, <laughs> you got to ask yourself how many of these critics are living in L.A. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that love yeah. movies that are about L.A., you know, um, <laughs> and it's it's all about L.A. You know, he's got he really kind of pivoted with Lost Highway and with and with um, Mulholland Drive to telling stories about what it's like to live in Los Angeles. And they're not nice stories. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I get it. I love that movie. I absolutely adore it. Um but I, I like other movies better. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely. <laughs> that's 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 pretty. You've nailed it. That's pretty much how I feel about it. I just I, there's others there's other films in his filmography that just move me more. At number two is one of them, Blue Velvet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God, what's number one? I'm like trying to do math now to figure out. Oh, what it's, the hell it's his one first. It's his. It first. would leave it with a razor head. Of course. Yeah. No, Blue Velvet's incredible, right? Uh. Uh, I was just watching this stupid internet video that was like top 10 times people broke the fourth wall in a movie or something. And they showed that scene where Dennis Hopper turns around and looks at Kyle MacLachlan when they're in the car and they've like taken him out for that wild, wild night. And yeah. Dennis Hopper turns around and he looks right into the camera and he's like, you're like me. You're just like me. And I hadn't even ever realized that he's totally talking to the audience. Lynch talks to the audience all the time in his shit. A moment drive full of it. But um, that moment of just the, him saying, like, you think I'm some perverted monster? Like, you're watching me. You're just like me. It's such a great, disturbing moment in that movie. It's a great movie. I, I, I love filmmakers that make us complicit. We talked a little bit about that on our, our Peeping Tom episode uh, quite a few weeks back now. But when a filmmaker makes you complicit in what you're seeing i we we need to be challenged and and lynch is a master of of challenging everything you think you know not just about cinema but about yourself and how you view the world around you yeah i mean my my favorite scene in mulholland drive is is the scene at winkies when the two guys are oh. talking about the dream he had right he tells him i had this dream 
that we were sitting at this table having this conversation and then we walked outside and behind the the parking garage out there there's this scary thing and then uh he lays out the story and then the other guy says okay let's take a look and then they just do this long tracking shot where they're these literally doing the exact same thing that he just told you about and you're coming to this wall and you know what's going to happen you know there's something there because everything that he's talked about has already happened and it happens and it scares the shit out of you it's like i don't know how you pull that off i don't know how you pull that trick off where you tell somebody everything you're about to do to them and then you just do it that's uh, that brings me to a, an interesting question: Is David Lynch a filmmaker or is he a magician? <laughs> yeah, good. I don't know. I saw him work. I will say I saw him work on the new Twin Peaks thing, and um, and I got to see him direct a couple friends, and he was wonderful. He spoke to everybody very calmly. He took his time with every single actor that was on screen, and then he would sit back and they would roll. And he would stop again. And he only ever did about three takes of something. But uh, there was no nothing rushed. There was no divaness about him. He's just tuned in, dialed in, and respectful. And I remember there was a, a story that Patricia Arquette told about being in Lost Highway. And there's a scene where she has to take her top off and walk over towards somebody. And it's just really all about that moment. And she was very nervous about doing it. I don't think she'd like done nudity before. And before she came in, she said that Lynch had wanted to talk to the whole crew before she came in. And apparently he just dressed down the crew. And he said, if anybody looks at her inappropriately, makes any kind of comment, does anything, you're off the set, you're gone. So when Patricia Arquette walked in and had to do this, she said... Something like she just never, she couldn't have imagined a safer space to do something that was so hard for her. Um, and, you know, amidst the Me Too movement with with some of the shit that's in Lynch's movies, I mean, Blue Velvet, all of these movies, um, it wouldn't have surprised anybody to hear that he was on that list, you know? Um And just nothing came out about him because he seems to be a decent human being. Watch... In a week, something terrible will happen, and I will look a fool. But um, <laughs> oh man, I can't, I can't see that happening. Every interview I've ever seen with him, he's just the sweetest, most unassuming. Just, I mean, he is a, a dark genius. But I mean, you feel like you could sit down and and have coffee with him or a beer with him, and you would just, he's just this sweet, artistic, intellectual. That stories like that, hearing him dress down the set like that, that's so uplifting in the in the world that we live in i'm i'm elated to hear that yeah and you know he he uh he talks to all of his um actors in character um he calls them by their character names and it's not because he's like trying to help them stay in character it's just that's how fully immersed he is in the story he's telling you know uh, watching him watching him guide a camera for a shot was really really great he uh he had done everything that he needed to do and then he wanted to have a handheld shot of this character exiting the diner with a gun and you could tell they weren't going to use any of the audio because lynch was just there on a microphone narrating the shot for the cameraman and the actor he had them just like you know uh pause here take a moment look over there swing the camera around and he just choreographed this whole thing on the fly and it was which was impressive, but what was even more impressive was 
the absolute willingness for the actors and the cameraman to just do it. Um, and that comes from, you know, 10 great films. <laughs> well, nine. Sorry, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm monopolizing. Oh no no that's that's why you're here man you are you you have revealed yourself as our our Lynch expert and we definitely appreciate that life lifelong dream lifelong dream so number one is a racer head that you know uh, that's a that was a one and done for me <laughs> I I I have a I don't have any problem with the movie in, in and of itself like I, I I don't unlike his other movies where I'm starting to form my my opinions more on what i i think is going on that is one that is still uh kind of an enigma to me um which is fine which is fine because i'm sure well well, it's in the book so i'm sure we'll cover it but i i have no problem with with directors debuts being sort of regarded highly because that's sort of what launched them into the the stratosphere or or, and you know whatever you know that's what got them going but like he has done so much better since Eraserhead. And I think, I think like a lot of other directors and their debuts, um, they're good, not great. And I think we can like you, whether you're a director or an actor or a writer or a whatever you, you theoretically get better at what you do over time because of experience. So while I am certainly not shitting on Eraserhead, I, I, I shouldn't be one. It shouldn't be one. Like, like give it its due, it's due, but he went on to make much better things. That That's my two cents on a racer head. Yeah. I totally put it like in the middle. I, I mean, I, I've, I've seen that movie maybe twice and I, I was kind of the same. Like every frame is a painting. You could hang any frame of that on your wall if you wanted to. Um, <laughs> it's you know, so visually striking. Um, and, but, and I mean, can you imagine being like, like some stone drunk t- college kid that like goes out to see this thing like at midnight. Cause that's how it played for so long. Like it, it's yeah. midnight movies. Um, it must've, you know, been an incredible experience and you know, my only experience, I don't think I've ever seen it in a theater, but my only experience is watching it on TV or, you know, having rented it or whatever. Um, and yeah, you just see all the groundwork, right? You see the groundwork for everything there. Um, and it's like, such a free flow there's not really any i mean again but there is a narrative right the narrative is this guy has a baby and the baby turns out to be a really terrible thing and he feels trapped (laughs) right that's the story of the movie and then you know so there we go that's 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 the list according to far out um i'm happy we got to have a little bit of a david lynch overview sort of discourse here i'm excited to potentially revisit him with a razor head and mj that would be awesome to have you back for that episode oh, i'd love to i'd love to so a couple of things that we do on the show um is we we talk about unsung heroes and we talk about favorite scenes or favorite shots um i have i have my thoughts but i'm gonna throw it out anybody want to take a, a quick like this is what i think well, this film has, like when we talked about Jurassic Park on that episode ages ago, this film has literal unsung heroes in in the makeup team. In fact, it's it's not it's not a, a, an unknown story that the Academy members campaigned for a best makeup Oscar, which this film I think should have retroactively received. Of course, the next year when they finally did bend after the seven or eight year battle, whatever it was. Because uh, it sounds like the Elephant Man was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back in that particular argument, but they gave it to an American werewolf in London, which is definitely not, 
you know, it's it's definitely deserved. I mean, that's the most compelling thing about that film is the transformation. But I definitely feel like this film has has still been shorted that honorary Oscar that it deserves, and and that absolutely lands and it should land in the hands of those those makeup people. Hang on, I've got their names here really quick. We've got uh, Christopher Tucker who designed it, Wally Schneiderman who was the supervisor, and then the uh, the people that applied it, Beryl Lerman and Michael Morris. Yeah, I wanted to give a shout out to. Um to John Morris's score, I really liked the score in this. Um, I thought it it helped accentuate, accentuate scenes really well. Um, and then I looked him up a little bit, and yeah, really most known for just doing Mel Brooks comedies, and and apparently the the, the music for the for the hit TV series Coach, starring Craig T. Nelson. Um, but uh, I really liked the music, and then I really loved, and this is something we hadn't brought up yet, and I I. I, I also picked him because I wanted to talk about this. John Morris was um, adamant, like like really, really did not want Lynch to use the adagio for strings that we hear at the end. Um, uh, he said that um, using that piece of music is going to, uh, that this piece is going to be used over and over again in the future and that every time it's used in a film, it's going gonna, it's gonna to diminish the effect of the scene, which I got to say is true. Because the second I heard it, I went platoon. Um, so. Uh, oh God! The list of films and TV shows that Adagio for strings have been used in: Lorenzo's Oil, Kevin and Perry Go Large, Amelie, the Tenacious D movie, fucking used it. It's been used like three times on The Simpsons, Red Dwarf, South Park. Gee, that's he's absolutely right. I'm super glad you went with John Morris because his score is so nuanced and beautiful. It's like kind of like fairy tale like, and it's got an air of that old timey circus kind of music, but you know, like an organ grinder kind of thing, but not like in your face. Well, and, and one of the only, like really one of the few times he didn't work with, uh, Angelo Badalamenteri, um, who, I mean, pretty much everything else after this, uh, he's his composer on. Um, so yeah, except for Dune when he had Vangelis. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I you know it's funny that you bring that the because you're totally right. Like the adagio is is like a masterpiece, and it and also seemingly uh, very important to accompany a lot of different things on film. But like Lynch was the first one to use it, I think, and I remember him telling the story about it that they had he had written uh, the composer had written a piece for the end there. Um, uh, uh, and Lynch loved it, but he had always wanted to use Adagio for strings. And so he played both versions for the producers, but he played Adagio first. And this is in the Lynch on Lynch book. And he says, um, I learned a lesson that day that when I have to show things to producers, I always show them the version I want first, because that's the first impression they're always going to have of it. And anything that happens after will lose that effect. And I just thought that was such a great little, like, Sun Tzu, the art of war, <laughs> like, how to win your battles. It's like, sure, I'll show you both versions. I'm going to show you wasn't, the one I want first. Yeah. Wasn't there a story, Ian, was it on Brazil about Terry Gilliam showing the, like, the 90-minute version or whatever and stopped? What, what, what movie was that where? Oh, yeah, he deliberately sabotaged the screening of the producer's cut of the film. That's right. It just stopped at, at at the time they wanted it to be. It was like, what happened? Like, well, that's your movie. That's um, great. I love that. Uh, MJ, any any favorite any favorite scenes or, or or shots that stand out to you from the Elephant Man? It's really hard. You know, I um, 
the the movie's really kind of wonderfully uh, bookmarked visually. Um, you know, you open up on the photograph of his mother, and then it becomes her real face, and then the the in like the sounds of industry are happening with the elephants, which is really interesting. Yeah, and she's kind of you know, um, uh, it's very you know, the frame rate is really wide and it's just kind of like blurry and everything. It's, it's pretty scary in that moment. Um, and then it finishes with Adagio, but again on the mother and it's a very peaceful, um, send off with her. And it's just such a nice progression visually, um, of starting in a place of such turmoil and sadness and abuse and ending in a place of grace. And it kind of mirrors you know, Merrick's story throughout. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Such a well-made movie. And <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I love it when movies can bookmark themselves when the first, when the first visual and the last thing that you see are significant to each other. Um, you know, I think a lot of movies now just, I don't know, things get made quickly and they seem to not worry too much about something like that, you know, but um, I really love the care that it takes to, to make sure that you're beginning and ending with something that's similar, but very different. Yeah. Right. Right before the end there, I, 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 there is something again, it, it's sentimental, but not overly. And I, it really, it worked on me was him seeing the picture, uh, the drawing of the person sleeping in bed. And he mentioned earlier, I wish I could sleep like a normal person sleeps. And again, I don't know how historically accurate that is, but I, I got to say, I don't care because him choosing to finally go to sleep that way, no, I, you know, knowing full well what the repercussions of that is going to be, um, I, I'd like you know he's 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 choosing to go out on his own terms, and and mm-hmm. and for the story that this movie was trying to tell, that and then and I think that and that does play so beautifully into that ending uh, with the with the mother and sort of that ethereal and the stars and everything going on. I was that worked really well. Yeah, and another thing that Roger Ebert was dismissive of in his two star review was that ending yeah <laughs> of course i mean roger ebert hates elephant men i guess so um any any lingering elephant man thoughts how do we i don't i pains me to speak ill of mel brooks but how do we feel about the nepotism when it comes to casting and bancroft he very famously said well, why the hell should she have to audition? She won the Oscar for Miracle Worker, and she's sleeping with the producer. <laughs> I mean, she's great. She's totally, totally great at it. She's she's the first character that walks in, um, and her uh, her she walks in with a smile, and when she sees him, it stays there, and nothing changes. It's a really it's a really lovely moment um, to to watch this woman be entirely accepting of something that every single other person has has you know at the worst recoiled from and at the best like you know shuddered from it's a really nice moment when she walks in and sees him my my quick response is that how many times have the coens cast francis mcdormand how many times does wes anderson cast his best friends like like i i don't mind it because i mean she's talented and I, I maybe just appreciate the fact that he made a joke about it. Cause I'm like, fuck it. It's going on anyway. We might as well just come out and say, well, fuck, why not? Oh no, that's, that's 100% the thing that I, I appreciate about it is how open Mel Brooks was. It's great. Yeah. I loved him. I loved hearing him talk about meeting Lynch for the first time when he expected, you know, he had seen a racer head and he just expected like 
this insane person to walk in and then he sees this like you know gentleman in a three <laughs> midwest gentleman in like a, a three-piece suit and a scarf walk in and he was like i have no idea i have no idea what this person is yeah supposedly he ran up to him and embraced him because he he he, he said, I get a razor head and you wait. I think he offered him the job on the spot. This just, like I said earlier, this sweet, unassuming guy who was a fucking Eagle Scout from Montana. Like where, like when you, when you try and connect the dots, like when you, when you look at Lynch or when you, when you hear him speak, like, where does this come from? Mm -hmm. One of my favorite photos of him was when he was, uh, he's a uh, very into the transcendental meditation movement. And he was, uh, going on kind of a tour to spread that word. And uh, they just had this picture that was accompanying it was with was maybe like 50 people sitting in fold out chairs, um, all meditating together. And Lynch is in the front row, right dead center. And mo every single other person is calm, upright, eyes closed, serene. And Lynch is crouched over, tensed up with his hands together. And um, and it was just this wonderful moment of realizing like, oh, you're you're doing everything your own way. You don't give a shit about how something is supposed to be done. You're getting massive results the way you want them by meditating in a ball crunched up. You know, you're getting what you need doing it the way you want to. Um, and it's just it's incredibly inspiring. Yeah, my my appreciation for him is just growing more and more even as we have this conversation. So uh, we end every show by asking the question, should this film be in the book? So um, I'm going to ask this question, but then there is a follow-up once we've all kind of answered. So NJ, as our guest, should the Elephant Man be in 1001 movies you must see before you die? Yeah, totally. 1001 movies? Absolutely. You know, if you whittle it down to 100, uh, maybe not. <laughs> but um, a thousand and one, yeah, hundred percent. Ian, do you believe that the Elephant Man should be in the book? I I do recommend people see this movie, Lynch fan or not. And I, I there are a lot of things, as I mentioned, there are a lot of things I I don't like about it. A lot of things that I I do love about it. But I'm gonna go no, simply simply because I like the straight story more. I think that is a as I mentioned on last week's episode. I think it is. I think it's one of the greatest mic drops in film history as far as, you know, people ragging on him, his on his ongoing battle with Siskel and Ebert, can you just make a normal movie? And then he makes this thing that is literally called The Straight Story, tells a linear narrative, and it is absolutely stunningly beautiful. Like I mentioned, he got Disney to, to pay for it, for, for the distri distribution and all of that. I just... I think the straight story touches me more, especially, and this is, I, I watched it uh, a couple nights ago, the the scene where he's in the bar with the other World War II vet, and because that was such a different generation, guys that didn't open up before we really knew and had an understanding of what PTSD is and what it does to somebody, and he tells the story about the friendly fire incident where he accidentally killed one of their scouts, that fucking... That lays me open, man, every time. So I, as much as I love the Elephant Man, if you gotta choose, it's it's straight story for me. Do you have to choose? Is it all right? Well, okay. Well, so 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 it's it's totally up up to to you. Everybody's opinion is is sort of it. Um, so my answer is no, and my <laughs> the same. I but it's my the exact same replacement. Um, 
And like, so my next question was this. So Lynch is in the book three times. Three of his films are in the book. It's The Elephant Man, Blue Velvet, and Eraserhead. So the next question is, if you're going to put three of his films in the book, Lynch, Lynch gets three. What three are going in the book? Yeah, shit. Because, because I think I think the book has one right. I think Blue Velvet should yeah. be in the book, and I, I'd I'm agree totally with that. Yeah. I'm totally playing my cards for like whatever a future episode would be. But I I think replacing the Elephant Man with the Straight Story and replacing Eraserhead with Mulholland Drive. That's what that's me. That's what I would do. Yeah, I mean, I would keep Blue Velvet for sure. Um, Eraserhead so hard because it was like it was very revolutionary. It's uh, everything about it, you know. Um, but there are better movies. I would I would say, Blue Velvet, Mulholland Drive, and then like yeah, probably Wild at Heart. Ian, what about you? I yeah, I'm going I'm going Wild at Heart, Blue Velvet, and uh, and the Straight Story. Those are my three. Nice, cool. So, so yeah, so that, that's it. You know, I, I was just curious to know basically what three we'd all put in, um, blue velvet. I think the can, the consistent winner there, there you go. Cool. Um, so, so that's it. That's so, uh, MJ believing that, uh, the elephant man should be in the book. Ian and I, not so much, but clearly I think we all would recommend it. It's not out oh, of lack of not liking the film. <laughs> Um, but that is just what three humble people think. That's, uh, that's what we got. So we want to know what you think. So please find us on Facebook and on Twitter, hit us up. Let us know what you think of Lynch and the elephant man and all things film. Uh, you can support the show at patreoncom slash a thousand and one by one. You can find us on Google and Apple and Stitcher and Spotify and all those great places. Um, MJ again, thank you so much for being on the show. And we now have our, yes, we have a resident David Lynch expert now, which is great. Oh, uh, what an honor. What an honor. Um, can I plug something? Is that a oh, thing please. I can do? Yes. Uh, I, I host a trivia over Zoom. We have a, something called Trivia Zoom, and we do it every Friday night at 7 o'clock. Um, it's free to play. It's super fun. We do like video and audio and visual things. I host it. Uh, we got a whole system. It works really smoothly. Uh, so people should check it out. We're on like Facebook. Just look us up at trivia zoom and you'll, you'll see it. You'll see it yeah. there. We will, we'll definitely, we'll post the link when we put up, uh, when we put up the episode oh, right for on. sure. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and, and for those of you who have been sticking around, uh, you know that next week we're jumping to 1990. We're jumping back to a director we've already discussed. Maybe one of the biggest Oscar travesties of all time. But we're not going to let you know quite yet what that film is. Uh, But until then, I am Adam. And I am Ian. And we will see you next week.